the Pew Bible is page 983. I'm going to finish the series up today on Jonah, and uh, we'll be looking at chapter 3. But when you look at chapter 3, it's pretty brief. Uh, there's not that many words there, and then if you flip over the next page, you'll see that chapter 4 also is pretty small. The book of Jonah is a short book, but let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's word, Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I had to add that emphasis. I could, I could just imagine. If you look at the picture on the wall in the corner over there, uh, Jonah has just been spit up out of the fish at the end of uh, chapter 2. So this is where we pick up. He's come out of the fish. He's been in there for how long? I really believe that that's true. Jesus said it was true. It was a sign of Christ being in the tomb. So Jonah comes out of this fish after being there for three days. Can you imagine fish after three days and being inside of a fish? All of those details. He comes and he preaches the word of God. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, and the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. But when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had, that he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the passage that we'll be looking. If you keep your Bibles open, I will be touching in chapter 4 in a moment. Oh Lord, I pray that you'll take this interesting story and help us to see things that we haven't seen before. I pray that you might help us to practice what has been preached. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you look at the bulletin card that's in the front uh, of, your, uh, of your pew, you're going to see that the getting to know you theme is what we've been challenging this whole month. And you've been getting to know some of the missionaries a little better, Lord willing. You know what their names are. You know where they do some ministry. And you get to see some of their hearts. As you hear them get to talk, it's hard to pull the microphone away. It's exciting to see that there's something inside of them. Now today, I want you to get to know something more. I want you to know the message that I believe is inside of them. The first Sunday of the month, it was getting to know the God who would initiate this, the God who would save. As Mike Urich preached that message, and praise God, you got an endorsement from the Presbytery Committee, so he'll be going before Presbytery on November 14th, so we need to continue to pray for Mike. Um, but when you get to know the God who initiated this, 
God was interested in saving the Ninevites. What kind of a God is that? The second message we preached was getting to know the struggle of faith that's inside of us. As we looked at Jonah in chapter 2, and Jonah was in the middle of the whale or in the belly of the whale, wherever. Wow. He wasn't a happy camper. You know, you listen to our brother Scott give testimony about our busy lives. We're a lot like Jonah. And you get to see the struggle. God, I wouldn't have done it that way. Do you really have to reach those people? You can see the consternation because that matches up with us. In today's language, it's kind of a discrimination. It's kind of a justice theme. Is that really us? Then last week, we got a live testimony from a guy who was born in a foreign country who married another girl from another foreign country. He was born in Egypt. She was born in Syria. And there they are standing in America ministering to Muslims. What an interesting testimony that man had after uh, more than six years or six decades of ministry. What a struggle. Today, I want to tell us why we struggle. I want to say, why do we even get up out of bed in the morning and say we're going to do something? It's because of the salvation message. It is the red page in the wordless book. It is the red page that is derived because of the need for a white page. Because none of us have a white page. None of us. That sounds bad. It's, we don't have a clean page. We all have a heart that's full of sin. So today's message is to try to show you that there is great reason to rejoice as we look at the flags of the nations all around us, as we hear of the missionaries that are locally trying to reach people who may not have even opened a Bible before. I want to tell you about the beauty of the salvation message. And, and I want you to get to know its details. I want to ex- unpack it for us. I want you to know what it means, how it works. And I want you to be able to answer the personal question, am I a recipient of it? Am I saved? Because the message of salvation is, number one, for sinners. That's the first point, if you're keeping track with me. The first point is that this salvation is for sinners. When we're introduced in the the book of Jonah, if you turn to chapter 1, you're going to see in verse 2 that the God who initiated all of this is interested in sinners. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. They have an awesome economy, and they are good trading partners. What does God tell us about Nineveh? It is populated with these kind of special people. They're unique, right? Only Nineveh has those kind of people. They are filled, the city of Nineveh is filled with sinners. And if you look how God frames it, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, which means it's a big city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. They're a bad lot. Okay, now just take for a moment, put your thinking cap on. Where can you go in this world and not find evil people? Come on, cruise ships got to be without them, right? Where can you go? The interesting thing is the gospel is for sinners. It is, and this is good news. And the reason why it's good news is because all of us can identify with the people in Nineveh. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
All of us are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. If you turn to Romans 3, after Paul has tried to explain last week in chapter 1, and he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but then he looks at the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, he starts to to tell us that that there is none righteous, no, not even one. For all of us are inclined to go after what seems right in our own eyes. The Ninevites were truly great sinners. And that's why a salvation was to be given to people like that. Jesus offers his hope to sinners. For when you go to Matthew chapter 1, when they were going to name Jesus, the angel says, you're not going to name him after his earthly dad, uh, which would be the, the adopted dad, Joseph. You're not going to name this special baby Joseph. You're going to name him Jesus. You know why? For he, help me, he will save his people from their sins. The salvation is for sinners. Point one. Point two, when you look at how the story unfolds, this salvation is for sinners who are enabled to see their sin. You see, at first, the people of Nineveh, they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. They were doing the same thing that was going on in the days of Noah. If you go back to Genesis 6, you'll be able to see all of the thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Solomon was right. They were having fun. But the salvation that actually comes to people is for those who actually can see their sin. How can you see sin? When you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, do you see sin? That's a trick question, right? You can see sinful effects. You know, you can see a lot of things. But the question that I'm raising to you is most of us are not able to see our sin. It's almost like the whole idea most of us can't see the beam that's in our own eye. Why? Because it's blocking our vision. You can't see, but it's so plain to see. And the problem is, is that the people of Nineveh, these great sinners, they couldn't see how bad they were. They had just gotten into the, the rut of life, and they were doing the things that seemed convenient. They were following the customs and patterns of their day. They couldn't really help themselves. This was normal. If you go and you talk to a lot of people today in 2015, even in coastal Sussex, They have come up with a new normal, a new normal that includes sin. There's no shame for a lot of the sin anymore. There's not even a hiding of it anymore. We actually embrace it. We identify with it. Even inside the church, we have picked our favorite sins and we have championed them. And they have become normal And if you talk with us individually, if you're in a counseling situation, you'll be able to realize that there are all kinds of idols that you've erected in your own life, just like I've done in mine. Things that you think are so important. And you love them. And you champion them. Because you can't see how it's more important to you than God himself. So the second point is, this salvation is for sinners who can see their sin. So since they can't see their sin, since we're so prone to not see our sin, what do we need? We need someone to tell us. And if you turn to Romans chapter 10, and you don't have to, I can, I can quickly 
quickly take you to that passage. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13 and following, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that wonderful news? But then in verse 14, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without some preacher? How will they know about their need if someone doesn't show them? The beautiful part of this passage, how are they to preach unless God sends them? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Now, the whole point I wanted to bring to you is that God's salvation, this wonderful salvation, it is for people who are sinners, not for people that are perfect. And, it, and, and when you're a sinner, it's not that you get to glory in your sin, but you begin to see your sin. And as I like to say, you see the ugliness of your sin. The eyes of faith allow you to see God who is holy and allows you to see the beauty of holiness in our lives also gets you to see the ugliness of sin wherever it is. When you see the ugliness of your own sin, that's a beautiful thing. You see, and that's why, how shall we know unless someone come and preach? How can we hear? God raised up a man to go to the Ninevites, a man to come and shine the light amidst the darkness this messenger did not have to be timely, eloquent, or even eager. <laughs> I didn't say anything about how he smells. But just think about it. This guy, Jonah, coming into Nineveh was God's man to expose the evil. And his interesting message that he comes with, right? It's something that kind of shocks us. So Jonah arose, chapter 3, verse 3. He arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And then he said, while he walked or while he preached and proclaimed, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What an interesting message. If I came up and stood behind the pulpit and said, you have 40 days, December 7th, it's not going to be known. It might not be December 7th, but close. It's not going to be a D-Day for Normandy. It's going to be a D-Day for you personally. 40 days is all you have because you're a sinner. And a holy God says you're not going to skate through existence and say, and he's not going to say, oh, well, 40 days. You see, this message of condemnation is because of sin. He's pointing out sin. He says a holy God cannot tolerate sin. And when you begin to recognize this, that's the message of the hope of the gospel. That when sinners see their sin, they begin to see the dark page of the wordless book. They stop denying that they're sinless. That's the second point. The third point is that this message, this salvation is for sinners who are enabled to see their sin, who are also prone to hate it, to see its ugliness. You see, oftentimes when you get pointed out with your sin, what is our, our, our quick response? If I were to come to you and tap you on the shoulder and say, you did this wrong, what are you going to do? There's a couple of ways of handling it. One is you could punch me in the nose and I'd be gone. I'd be at the hospital getting it fixed and you'd be, you'd be okay, right? You could attack and so you never deal with the sin in your own life. Or if somebody does deal with the sin in your life and we actually do have a conversation, we have a relationship we talk about, guess what happens? You almost will always, just like I will tend to always, default to defensiveness. You'll begin to justify why you do what you do. 
And if you're really good at it, you'll pull Bible verses. I'm good at it. You'll come back and say, I did this because of this. I did this because of this. I did this because of this. But most of the time, you don't even bring Bible verses into it. You just do it because it feels good. You do it because you think you can get away with it. You do it because everybody else does it. You do it because you didn't think about anything. You're just wired to do it. You see, you got to see the ugliness of your sin. If you don't see the ugliness of your sin, then just knowing that you're a sinner doesn't change anything. The salvation message comes to people and it shows you how putrid it is, how terrible it is. I can't even get it out of my mouth. One single little sin, the eating of an apple or an orange or whatever it was, put Jesus on the cross for Adam and Eve. What sins do you do that Jesus wouldn't have to pay his life for. You see, when you see the awfulness of a little white lie, when you see the manipulation that you have in trying to do the dance of looking like a good Christian, then you have not seen the ugliness of your own sin. This salvation message that came to the Ninevites showed them how bad they were. It was like a bright light that shined amidst the darkness. And if you look at what they responded to, you can see clearly that they were saying, we have violence, we have this, we have this, we have this, we have this. You can see them scurrying. You can see them all concerned. It brought about some significant changes in their life. They wanted to repent. Because when they saw the ugliness of their sin, the only thing they wanted to do was run from it. I'm telling you, when you look at the passage and you see in verse 4, Jonah began and he starts preaching. In verse 5, once the people believed, once they saw with the eyes of faith, they ended up doing some things. They started to fast. They, next, they put on this clothing, this garment, sackcloth. And that was from people who were important, that were wealthy, even to those who were not, to the least, to the impoverished, to the homeless. Then the word was was communicated all the way up to the people in government. Imagining for us, it would be like getting it to Dover or getting it to Washington. And the people that would hear it from Washington, however they would have heard it, maybe they didn't hear it from the preacher man, but they heard it from somebody else who said, hey, you better pay attention. And the people in positions of authority responded, and they would come down from their pontificating. He removed his fancy garments, the ones that have all of his uh, sergeant or the, the commander-in-chief stuff, and he ends up acting like everybody else in Nineveh, wearing sackcloth, and he even sat in ashes. Now, we don't do that anymore. That's past tense, isn't it? Maybe it's because we don't repent like they did. This man issued a proclamation and he published it everywhere. There was no fear. There was no anxiety. He absolutely wasn't trying to be politically correct. He said, by the decree of the king and everybody in this noble house place, let neither beast nor nor man nor beast nor flock nor taste anything. He said, this is required. We cannot take our sinful condition trivial ever again. When have you ever got stirred with your sin like this? It's amazing what took place. As I was trying to unpack it, this repentance had a change of appearance. This repentance had a change in attitude and it had a change in actions. And that's why when you look at yourself, are you having changes like that? 
If you're not, there may not be repentance. The appearance, they looked differently. Their countenance was even changed. I am amazed with the attitude because in verse verse 9, when you look there, it says, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger, basically from his justice. When you start realizing the attitude that God might have mercy on me, that's a change in attitude from what was in Nineveh before. Have you ever thought that God has to take care of you? God has to scratch your back. God has to provide for your need. The point here is when they repented and saw their ugly sin, they said, maybe God has some kindness towards us, but that's his to give if he wishes. Isn't that amazing? That's the God who initiated all of this stuff. And when our attitude is changed because we see the ugliness of our sin, you see that repentance kicks in and our lives are changed and the actions of violence stop. In fact, our prayer life increases. Uh, did it, did it, was it just a little bit more prayer than before? This guy said, stop everything and pray. Don't eat food. Don't do these other things. I don't know why they didn't have their animals uh, eat. Scripture doesn't tell us. I don't really think there's any spiritual significance to it. But it does tell us that this was widespread. They wanted you to stop pretending that everything else is normal when you see the ugliness of the sin in our midst. Wow. Like spiritual breathing, we ought to be repenting similar to the Ninevites. And as a wrap-up, I wanted to make an application. So what does this salvation actually look like? We've seen people who were once known for their sin see their sin because God sent them a messenger. They saw the ugliness of their sin and they repented. What a day of rejoicing that would be. If you take Jesus' words about when one sinner repents in heaven, when one, I mean, when one sinner repents, there's rejoicing in heaven. Can you imagine when there's a whole city of 120,000 people who repents? There's a party going on up there. I'm telling you, it was exciting to see that many people taking God seriously, turning away from wrongdoing. Can you imagine the fruit of the Spirit that were, was being birthed Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and tenderness and gentleness. That's a place to be. You might want to move to Nineveh. You might want to move. But I told you that as I unpack this, there are some who may not quite understand how God can forgive sinners. Let me unpack it real quick for you as we march down a few steps. It's the wordless book, but I want to explain it. Being saved is not simply being delivered from pain. It is being delivered from the punishment that is due to your sin. When I ask you what you're saved from, don't say I'm saved from my sin. You know what you're saved from when you're saved? You're saved from God. What do you mean, pastor? Because God's wrath is the thing that's being poured out upon your sin. And God's wrath is not optional. Exodus 34, 7. He will by no means clear the guilty. He has to punish sin. He cannot sweep it under the rug. God is a holy God. He is just, and therefore he cannot say, oh, well. Every sin is going to be requiring payment. Every sin. If you say the words that you're a Christian, that doesn't make you a Christian. If you try to do better than you did yesterday, that doesn't make you a Christian. If you compare yourself to somebody else who's probably worse than you, that doesn't make you a Christian either. You see, the sin that you have has to be forgiven. 
God has to punish every sin. Romans 6.23, you know it. For the wages of sin is... Is that all sin or just, just a few kinds of sins? All sins. They all require separation from God. And that's why this salvation is pretty amazing. God has to absolutely punish sin. In Isaiah 53, before Jesus came, about 700 years earlier, he ended up telling us that all we like sheep had gone astray. But, but he was going to be the one bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace would be upon him. And with his stripes, we would be healed. He would be like a lamb before the shearers is dumb and he wouldn't open his mouth. He wouldn't defend himself. He says, I'm going there to take your place to pay the penalty. And if you go to the cross in the Gospel of John 19, Jesus said, I've paid it all. It is finished. And now Romans 8 says there's no more condemnation to them who are in Christ because all the condemnation has been paid by Jesus. That's why when you quote John 3.16, for for, he says, God's love sent a son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish. And isn't that interesting that if you look at at Jonah chapter 3 verse 9 that's the last two words of the verse. So that we may not perish. The gospel in the Old Testament, it's the same gospel as it's always been. It works like this. God the Father purposed it, God the Son purchased it, and God the Spirit applies it. Before the foundations of the earth, Jesus was going to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world because he knew that sins were coming. God created the cosmos in six days, and I literally believe he did it in six days. Commandment number four says that he did it. All that is in them, he created. The apex of the creation was breathed into, given the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Adam was in the image of God, but mankind's innocence ended when they wanted to be just like God, because up to this point, the only thing they really didn't have was a knowledge of sin. And you know how they got it? By experience. They chose to get the experience of sin so they could be like God. But in becoming like God, they become cursed and they became cut off from God. All mankind by ordinary generation, that means all of them except Jesus. Sinned with Adam and fell with him in the first transgression. We all fell into an estate of sin and misery. And we all know what that feels like because everybody in this room can sing the song with Scott. God could, not, God could have left all mankind in that estate, but because he had purposed to send a redeemer, and that was going to be Jesus Christ, who was going to become man for us so that he might pay the penalty. It's pretty fascinating that of all the people that have ever lived in time, only Jesus came to save from sin. God's Redeemer paid the price, paid it in full. People like the Ninevites and like us have always been needy of this payment. And if you don't get that payment, then you better take heart because you're going to pay it. The wages of sin is separation from his grace. God sends a messenger to us. He gave us the Bible. He gave us people to proclaim the word of God as I'm doing today. We hear, and the book of uh, the scriptures tell us by faith, we, we, we get faith by hearing the word. God gives us the message. He opens our eyes up and we see the sinfulness of our sin and we see the beauty of his love saying, come unto me, I will give you rest. When the people of Nineveh were changed, there was rejoicing in heaven but not on earth. Chapter four, verse one. If you turn there and then I'll finish. 
it displeased Jonah. He was angry. Are you like Jonah? Are you like the Ninevites? Jonah knows it all. Jonah has God talking to him. What more could he want? What more could Jonah want? He has everything, and yet there he is in chapter 4, angry. Why would we ever get angry when sinners repent? It's because he hadn't repented yet. Again, all of us are more like Jonah because week after week after week, we get back into the rut of saying, God, I want it my way. I want it to be this way. I don't want to be uncomfortable with those people. I don't want to have to go over there. I don't want to part with my money in the box. I don't want to have to spend till 12 o'clock at church every Sunday morning, especially on Sunday days. Today, I'm sure you have grace. When you think about it for just a moment, just digest it. Are you more like Jonah in chapter four or are you more like the Ninevites at the end of chapter three? Look at your prayer life. We're talking about a prayer vigil. The elders were kind of contemplating, will anybody come? Or will it be inconvenient because it's a Saturday morning? We have all these small groups that are going on. I'm amazed. I'm thinking, man, I can't even keep them all straight myself. Two truth projects now, as well as community groups, as well as lots of hands groups. We have loving groups. If you're not a part of a group, I guess you're a part of the group that's not a part of a group. But that group ought to be shrinking. You understand what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of activity going on, but if we're more like Jonah and we're not as like the repenting Ninevites, then I wouldn't expect God to heal our land. I wouldn't expect God to bless us with some things that we think Christians should experience. It might be like I, as I took a niece home last week after church, didn't realize he was almost three hours away. When I got to his house, I got to see the Syrian queen. You know, she mentioned her. It's so interesting to hear her talk about the life of a Christian in Syria right now. And I was just all ears. Life in Syria, they go to church all the time. He says the church doors don't get locked. People come and pray. They thank God they're burned, their building hasn't been burned or bombed. For us, we can't wait to get out of the building. If you think about it for a moment, what's different? And I don't I want to join Rick Gray. I don't want to pray for persecution. It's not fun. It makes pastoral work a little bit harder. <laughs> but I do want us to get on our knees and pray and seek God's face and do the big R word, repent. And may it be shown in your in your appearance, in your attitude, and your corresponding actions. Dear Lord Jesus, I do come to a moment where I would like to, everyone in this room to search their own heart. Lord, I have that little picture of Jonah next to us, spit out of the whale. Even after going through those three days in that misery, chapter four, he's back to the same old grind of being angry as a Christian. It just doesn't make sense. Lord, I pray that as we consider ourselves right now, are we going to be like the Ninevites or are we going to continue like Jonah? For at the end of Jonah chapter four, we're left with Jonah still there and we don't know. We don't know what's going on in his heart.
We don't know if he's really repented. We don't see the change in his attitude. We don't see the change in his appearance. And we don't see even the change in his actions. Lord, we're, we're positioned. Are we like the person at the end of chapter 3 or the end of chapter 4? Lord, I pray that everyone in this room right now would answer that question. Am I like chapter 3 person or chapter 4 person? Lord, I don't know really how to do an altar call for that since we don't have an altar, but I pray that in our hearts we will decide right now, what are we? That we will look into our own souls and see, are we the ugly sinners? Which the answer is yes. But Lord, would you help us to see whether we're the ugly sinners who repent or are we the ugly sinners who don't? Lord, as we leave this place, I pray that we'll realize that this gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply for those over in Reform University Fellowship and, and Reform University Ministries and those in InterVarsity and those at Sussex Pregnancy Center and those that are over in Africa and those that are over in Syria and those that are over in Egypt. Lord, it is for people that are in this building right now as we communicate this good news that salvation is for sinners who see their sin and hate it running to Jesus Christ alone and to the cross for forgiveness. Lord, I thank you that we find comfort and consolation there. For the only way we come is that you draw us to yourself. You send a messenger to us and you paid it all. Oh Lord, I thank you for this good news in Jesus' name. Amen.